Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you communicate with power and become unstoppable on your path from hidden genius to influential leader. We know you have what it takes to reach your full potential. And each and every week, we share with you interviews and strategies to help you transform your life by helping you unlock your X factor, whether you're in sales, leadership, medicine, building client relationships, or looking for love. We got what you need. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Thank you for tuning in. Let's kick off today's interview. We are so excited to have Dr. Amishi Jha with us. Dr. Jha is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, where she researches mindfulness techniques to optimize focus, even under high stress. She's the author of Peak Mind, Find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day, which just came out and we're so excited to chat about. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amishi. And we would love to hear your origin story and how you became interested in finding your focus with mindfulness. Ooh, good question. Great to be here and to be together. My professional training is as a neuroscientist. So, you know, through undergrad and grad school, my real passion and intellectual interest was in the topic of attention. And that's pretty much what I studied. And at some point, not, not a surprising point, when I became a new mom, a new professor, was building my lab, husband in grad school, just sort of like the full catastrophe of life kind of caught up with me. And I, I had this real crisis of attention. And it became this sort of ironic experience of nothing in my professional life even more research that I could, could find in literature could guide me to help in feeling like I had lost access to my own focus. And I was feeling pretty lost at that point. Like, I study attention. I know this field. Like, why is there nothing I can do to help myself? And actually found out about mindfulness meditation in particular through one of my dear colleagues, a respected neuroscientist, Richie Davidson. And, you know, it was almost one of those things. I, I knew I was sort of in a, in a down kind of mindset. I was feeling very overwhelmed. And I wouldn't say I called it stress. I just felt like I couldn't shake being distracted all the time. Anyway, so he he's at a, this is when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. So he's he was giving a talk and he's a, a motion researcher. So he shows these beautiful images on the screen of two brains, basically two functional MRI images. One is of a negative brain, basically somebody induced to be in a negative mood. And then next to it, a positive brain, meaning somebody induced in a positive mood. And his, his point was just, look, the brain activation patterns are different. These are different brains. And at the end of his lecture, I raised my hand, uh, and it was really like everybody had been done kind of asking their basic questions. And I raised my hand. I'm at the back of the room. I'm like, how do you get that brain to look like that brain? Like, how do I get the, you know, how do I get the negative one to look like the positive one? And he just almost, I thought, kind of in a flippant way, said something that was, uh, made my jaw drop. He said, meditation. And I was like, what, what? <laughs> we don't use that word here. You know what I mean? It was like as offensive as being with astrophysicists and talking about astrology. Like it was just like, you don't, you don't talk about that stuff, dude. What are you talking about? But then we ended up talking later on and he mentioned some of the work they were doing. Now, of course, Richard Davidson heads a major center known for mindfulness. But at that point, he was really early days. It was early 2000s. And it got me curious enough that I had to overcome my own biases to go check it out. And once I started practicing, I realized, oh my goodness, this is that thing I've been looking for. This is a way for me to train my mind from the inside 
And I just got so curious. I'm like, we got to bring this to the lab and, and research it. Maybe we can add tools for other people that are stressed and need to perform at a high level. So sorry, that's a long answer, but that's how I entered the whole topic. Well, I don't think there's any time in history that more people have fought for our attention. And with that, we, we realize how, how limited we are with that attention and how important it is uh, where we focus it and how we use it in our own lives and be so indiscriminate and just handing it out to whoever asks for it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, we see it. We know that we're in the, we are the commodity in the attention economy. Um, we are <laughs> the product our mind, our attention is the product that many, many people are profiting from. And we're up against some pretty intense algorithms that we can't just will our way past. So that's that. That's a real crisis. But I would, I would just caution that this isn't really our fault. There's nothing wrong with our brain. In fact, the reason there can be algorithms get, that can predict exactly what we will do is because our attention is working so reliably, so perfectly on cue. That, you know, it's like, of course, if I see my name in a shiny red button, I'm going to click on it. Like, why wouldn't I, right? That's just what I've sort of, my evolution has designed me to do that. So I think that's also important to keep in mind. So we don't end up in this sort of self-blame mode of like, I just can't keep my attention focused. Well, I think many of us have probably at this point dabbled with mindfulness or meditation. And we hear this time and time again from our audience that I tried it. It's tough to stick to. It didn't work for me. And because of it, you know, a lot of people dismiss it. But we'd love to just unpack the science because I think that's what's often missing from the conversation. As you had your own biases around it, many people think of it as new agey or woo-woo. And the science is actually caught up in a lot of ways to, to really talk about the powerful aspect of being more mindful and what you describe as the peak mind. So how do you define the peak mind, if we could start there? Yeah, you know, just to make clear, because a lot of times when I, even when I hear people say that, I have this kind of image in my mind of some woman on a mountaintop, you know, her arms like up in the air, like, I did it, you know, like I'm a successory in, in the flesh. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about really peak experiences or extraordinary moments in time. I'm really talking about peak as having full access to our attentional resources so that no matter the challenges or circumstances, we're, we're fully there to best benefit what we do next. And that to me is even more valuable than having, you know, a mountaintop moment, because that means that I can trust myself to really maneuver through no matter what. And by the way, that doesn't just mean that I'm happy and even successful in every moment. It means knowing that when the sadness arises or when the challenge is there, I can maneuver through. I can make a different decision. You know, for example, if I know I'm quite upset, maybe don't press send on that email. Or <laughs> or you know, or even if I if I have a reactive moment and and snap at somebody to apologize more quickly. So all of these are what I mean by a peak mind. And you know, I I love what you said regarding mindfulness that it's had its moment. There's it's almost almost like a buzzword, which to me is just kind of amazing because when I started this work, people thought I was nuts. Nobody would ever care about mindfulness. Why are you bothering studying it? Why are you going to study the brain basis of this thing? And now it's kind of incredible to be on, you know, your, your show here, which I know a lot of people listen to and they're, and it's like, almost like you're talking about this topic again, you know, it's just like this very common thing. Part of the reason I think people have challenges with it is what they think they're going to get 
from practicing. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit, because I think the problem is if you start out putting a lot of pressure on this ancient practice and bringing it to our modern world that, you know, I'm going to do this thing and it's like a magic bullet and I'll instantly feel blissed out and everything will be, I don't know, rainbows and unicorns or something like that, right? Like mm. that's just not, that's just not the case with anything. But the other thing is you're fundamentally getting connected to the nature of your mind and your mind was built to be distractible. It just was. So the fact that you mind wander a thousand times is actually normal and has nothing to do with whether you're successful or not at this thing we can unpack, which is mindfulness meditation. Stop. Hold it right there. Are you tired of inconsistent results? Are you dating who you want to be dating? Are you where you want to be in your career? Do you have a proper roadmap to get you to where you want to go? If you're tired of wasting time and tired of seeing other people effortlessly build their dream lives while you work twice as hard with fewer results to show for it, perhaps it's time to get the guidance, skills, and accountability you need to reach that next level. In our X-Factor Accelerator, you'll develop the tools to communicate powerfully, cultivate unstoppable confidence, and be held accountable by a community of high-value members, mentors, and coaches. Now, this is no ordinary community or group. Each and every member has been selected and vetted to make sure that your experience is a prosperous one. That's right, AJ. Our members are driven, knowledgeable, and dedicated to advancing their lives and the lives of the community. They are CEOs, professionals, entrepreneurs, servicemen. So come join the fun. If implementing concepts from this show has enhanced your life, imagine what a comprehensive mentorship in the X Factor Accelerator could do for you. Unlock your own X Factor and become extraordinary. Apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. Pause right now and head over to unlockyourxfactor.com to apply. Well, I think many of us have encountered ADHD and maybe even been diagnosed with it or have friends who are taking the drugs to combat it. And even if you don't have it, you may have dabbled with those to get that focus. We hear about students now taking these drugs to get that focus, to study, to cram. But we don't often hear about controlling the other inputs to, that form the distraction. So many of us are overwhelmed by distraction. We talk about the devices, the notifications, TV shows, everything else that we have on our plate. And it seems like stress is at an all-time high. But we tend to look for drugs or easier outs to get that focus back, to get that limitless superpower back. Mindfulness is the opposite. It's much like working a muscle where if you set a goal of 45 minutes or an hour to work out and you've never worked out in your life, you're really going to struggle to do that full hour. And you're probably not going to want to continue tomorrow. And I found every time that we've talked about meditation, we have our fans and our followers who say, well, I can't do 30 minutes. I can't do 20 minutes every single day. It's just too hard. It's too challenging. I'd rather find a shortcut or something easier to do. And the book talks about a much smaller minimum effective dose that I think many of us, if we just started smaller and really just focused on the initial benefits instead of, as you say, shooting for the sunshine, the rainbows, the unicorns, and this practice of an hour long every single day, we might actually start to see some of the benefits of regaining that focus and attention 
instead of the struggles that we're currently having. So I know that the book is loaded with exercises and opportunities for you to start to sharpen these skills. But if someone in our audience has tried this before and it hasn't clicked or worked for them, what would you say is a core exercise that would be an easy way for them to start to see some of these scientific benefits that you discuss? Let me interrupt right there for one second. I think what would also help set this up is to get a better definition of what attention is because you broke it down into three different parts. And I know for myself, I never saw it in that way. And when when you started talking about meditation and how it helps with each one of those, it gave me a lot more clarity. So help our audience out there with that before we get into the meditation. That sounds great. There's so much good stuff. So many questions um, already and great content. So let's unpack it. I think that you're you're right, Jenny. Let's just start maybe with the basics, like attention 101. And then we'll jump into, uh, AJ, your question regarding what, what can we do like right now? The first thing to say is that our capacity to pay attention is the success story of our brain's evolution. And the reason we have attention is because the brain suffered from a really big problem, a really fundamental problem, which is there's far more stuff out there than you could possibly fully analyze. So now in a complex world, I mean, and that was like our ancient ancestors, right? Like we're talking about just very primitive, but even they had too much stuff to deal with. So the evolution of this brain system was the solution to that challenge. And essentially attention is about privileging a subset of information so we can sample our environment bit by bit. We don't have to take it all in at once, but maybe I can interrogate some portion of it and get more information and that'll help me maneuver and survive, et cetera. So just to keep that in mind and also to kind of start, and we can actually get into this a little bit more, like what is the nature of this system, this multifaceted system? And I'll I'll be happy to talk about kind of the three main parts that we've discovered. It's highly distractible. And that's by design too. You know, if you if you can if you can imagine if you had excellent focus again as our ancient ancestors, you're at some watering hole. You're like, I'm thirsty. I'm going to drink water. You know, soon enough you're going to be eaten because you're going to be so fixated on the water. You're not going to notice the predator nearby, etc. And by the way, if you can't plan or reflect in the modern world you're not going to make it very far. So the capacity for the mind to wander is a good thing. And the data suggests about 50% of our waking moments, our mind is not on our task at hand. So that's just the baseline. That's like normal circumstances. And so I, th- I just hope that that gives people some comfort uh, that to start with, that is not you alone. All of us have this feature of our mind. It actually makes sense that we have it. And by the way, there are ways we can actually work with it even better than we have been. So the way that I like to think about this system that's really designed to privilege some information over other information is to figure out how the brain privileges information. The first way we could think about is what it is that we should pay attention to, right? Like the the thing on which I should be getting information. And right now, for example, I'm looking at you on my computer screen. That should be the most important sensory input I get. If I looked over, you know, at the side of my room, you'd be like, what's up with that, right? That's the wrong thing to do. So what it is matters. The other thing that matters is sort of now, time. I should select for information that's occurring in this moment versus tied to my past or future. And then the third way we could think about even selecting information is is based on our goals. What's the most important thing, 
right? So the content, the timing, the goals, these are all ways that our brain has to think about selecting information. And, and it ends up that there's our, there are brain systems, distinct brain systems that do each of those three things. So the very first system we, uh, that has to do with this capacity to select what we call the brain's orienting system. I, I like to think of the metaphor of a flashlight. So if you're in a darkened room, you're in a darkened path, you're walking around outside somewhere and you want to see where you're going, a flashlight is a super handy tool because wherever it is that it's pointing, you're going to get privileged information about the path that you're, that you're walking on and everything else is going to be blanked out, really. And that's a good thing. You don't need to see everything in your environment. You just really need to make sure what's in front of you matters. The parallel between the actual brain system of orienting and the flashlight is, is actually multiple. It can be very laser focused. It can be broad. It can be directed to the external environment or even the internal environment. So if I said, you know, what is the sensation right now that you are feeling on the bottoms of your feet? You can direct the flashlight internally and check it out. And I'm positive nobody was probably thinking about that <laughs> right before I said it. But right. seamlessly, easily we do that. So the flashlight is a really handy uh, metaphor for this selecting thing. And I'll just mention the other two briefly, and we can unpack them a little bit more later. But the opposite of this kind of narrowing, selecting, privileging what information is in front of us is broadening and being receptive. And that uh, metaphor I use is a, a floodlight, you know, frankly, the exact opposite. And this is formally called the brain's alerting system. And it really is. It's like, I always think of like when I'm driving down the road and I see a flashing yellow light, you know, like it's flashing usually near some kind of construction zone or weird traffic pattern. What does it cue us to do? Pay attention. Does it tell us exactly what to pay attention to? No, but it's like, be broad, be receptive, observe what's happening and be ready to act if you need to. Very, very different mode. In that case, being narrow and privileging some information could really cost us, right? We might miss the child running into the street or the weird uh, turn that arrives onto our, our lane or whatever it is. So I hope that makes sense, that narrow, broad. And then the third system, which is really regarding this goals piece, is something called the executive system. Sometimes I refer to it as a, as a juggler because it's about kind of keeping all the balls in the air, just like the executive of a company. It's not about doing each individual task, but it's ensuring that our goals and our behavior align. And that's the, the sort of manager. And so when we think of attention as, as all of these different ways, then we can start talking about, well, how are you going to train it? How are you going to benefit it? Because all of these are vulnerable to stress. They're vulnerable to distractibility. They're vulnerable to the meanderings of the mind as well. And if we look at the science of late, it certainly feels to us that we've had this discussion that attention spans and distractibility is getting higher. Attention spans are getting shorter. Much of the content we consume, the things that we choose to spend our time engaging with, shorter and shorter bite-sized nuggets. Is that what you are seeing in the lab and what science is showing as we introduce technology into our lives to overwhelm these systems? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a surprising answer, but our attention yeah. spans are not shorter. They're not. That's not the scale at which evolution works, by the way. You know, 15 years of having a smartphone, your brain's not going to completely be different. The reason it feels like our attention spans are shorter is because, again, attention is working totally normally as it should be. So let's, let's think about why we even say that, right? So going back to that flashlight, we're on that darkened path. We're walking, we're guiding ourselves. All of a sudden you hear rustling behind you. What are you going to do? You're going to flick that flashlight back there and you're going to point to figure out what the heck's going on, right? You're alarmed. You might be a threat. So 
the capacity of this brain orienting system to be directed is, is we've already talked about. Yes, you can hold that flashlight and point it, but it also gets pulled and yanked around. And what are the kinds of things that yank it around? Threatening things, fear-inducing things, novelty. You might even say in the broad category of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like everything alluring that might have something to do with our survival advantage, we are going to want to pay attention to that in an unending, unceasing fashion that's what our social media content actually is. And by the way, who's the number one person we like to pay attention to? Ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, if if you now look at your social media feed, look at the kinds of things you click on. And when you're in your doom scrolling mode or just your zombie scrolling mode, think, what is it that TikTok is showing me video after video after video? It's going to be something in this category. So it's not that there's anything wrong with our attention. The bigger issue is... We're not in control anymore. We are allowing that automatic system, the one that gets pulled by certain content, to drive our actions. That means we've got to approach this differently. We can't battle against it. It's our biology. But we can use these two other systems to actually better serve ourselves because the flashlight's just getting yanked all over the place. Well, there's a lot of good and a lot yeah. of bad in that answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were hoping that we would say yes. <laughs> Science is showing that our attention spans are getting shorter so we could all breathe a collective sigh of relief. But of course, if you think about the way that these systems work, it makes complete sense that technology is just harnessing more distraction, but it's not having a biological impact on us. That's a convenient excuse for you just being distracted by these devices. So how can we marshal those other two systems? Because now that we know our attention is valued by Facebook, it's valued by these companies and made them unicorns and billionaires, how can we start to take it back and create and use that flashlight and that attention in a meaningful way for ourselves instead of being overly distracted? And this is exactly why I wanted this definition and these three pieces to be, to be brought out for everyone to understand because it plays along with us feeling that our attention spans have gotten shorter because the floodlight is picking up so much that is going on around us, which that becomes our conclusion. Oh, I guess my attention span's gotten shorter. So, perfect. So now let's talk about what we can do about it, right? Because that's what was what, AJ, you were asking me a moment ago. And the first thing is to realize, I don't know where my attention is often, right? As I said, the, the starting point number was 50% of the time our attention is not at the, on the task at hand. And that means not just external distractibility. Let's say we, we do figure out a way to hide out in some forest retreat where we have no technology. That number is not going to go down much. We're still going to be about 50% distracted. And it's really funny uh, when you actually look back, because I was getting very curious, like how long has, have people felt this way, that their mind is just all over the place? You know, is this a modern problem, really? But it's not. You know, there's this there's funny stories about like medieval monks talking about, you know, they're, they're wanting to be good monastics, but they're just, they keep thinking about lunch when they're supposed to be praying and and, and they <laughs> like break all up, they break their relationships with their families and just like, they're just trying to figure out a way to get the mind to just stay put and they it can't. And even when you think back to sort of the ancient roots of, um, from the wisdom traditions of things like mindfulness meditation, they came out of that sense of the human mind suffering. So this is not a modern conundrum. It's, a mo it's got more modern challenges, but this is a very long-term set of challenges. So I think that, that gives me a little bit more 
real, you know, my, my, I've obviously shifted. I'm, I'm, I'm gone from being a skeptic to now really a curious uh, investigator of these topics. But it gives me a lot of respect for what these wisdom traditions, 5,000 years old plus, were trying to do. They were trying to help us with a really fundamental problem. And now if we go to some of the practices, I think it, it for me as a neuroscientist, it's like thrilling because in some ways they figured out, oh my gosh, they kind of knew all this stuff. You know, they didn't have the brain science, but they kind of knew what they were doing because it fits perfectly into this three system view. So let's think of a, a, one of the practices I describe in the book, I call the find your flashlight practice. And Again, I'm borrowing from the framework I laid out from modern neuroscience, but it actually is something that more fundamentally is part of every mindfulness program that's probably been around for thousands of years, mindfulness of breathing. And so maybe I'll just describe what the practice is. And, and in the book, I'll just, I describe how we want to work up to about 12 minutes a day, and that's based on our work with soldiers and elite athletes and special operations forces, et cetera. But let's not even go there. Let's just say we're going to do this for like I don't know, 30 seconds right now, and just get the basics down of what the practice and what the exercise is. So does that sound good? Yeah. Yes. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the first request when you want to sit down to do this practice, and I do recommend that as you're starting out, just find a quiet place so that you're not you're not challenging yourself unnecessarily. Uh, don't probably do it, you know, with like all your technology surrounding you and um, blaring at you. So try to find a quiet place undistracted from external factors. And the task here is to sit comfortably in this kind of alert almost dignified posture, like you're doing something serious here, but not really uptight. So I'd say upright, not uptight. Take it seriously. It's a, it's a task of waking up, not falling asleep. You don't want to be slouchy and grouchy. And pay attention to the sensations of breathing. Now, what I mean by that is take the flashlight and get granular. Like what is most prominent in your sensory experience tied to breathing? Now, is it the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils? Is it your chest moving up and down? Maybe you feel something in your back. It doesn't matter what it is for you. You just figure out what that is, kind of check it out, and then think about this sort of just image of you pointing that flashlight of your attention to those prominent breath-related sensations and kind of hold it there. Just keep it focused there. Soon enough, if we did this for, if I let, you know, dead air for 10 seconds and we just did this. So just let's try it right now. Just focus your flashlight of attention on those breath-related sensations. With your eyes closed, if you, if you feel comfortable doing that. Just breathing. Focusing. And if it hasn't happened yet, it, it surely will. Your mind has wandered away from those breath-related sensations. It's off to another thought or another sensation or memory. It doesn't matter what, but it's not pointing to the breath anymore. What do you do in that moment? Well, first of all, it's a win. You just realized, oh my gosh, I'm not paying attention to breath-related sensations. All you got to do now is take that flashlight, redirect it back. So all we're doing for the short practice is focusing, noticing, and redirecting. And a lot of my uh, wonderful military colleagues just call that the push-up for the mind, that we are just doing a quick mental workout, and we repeat that over and over again and work up to about 12 minutes a day, and it can be very beneficial. So I hope, I hope that was helpful, just to kind of get a sense of this quick practice. And I hope that it kind of connects the dots between what we talked about with these three systems, because obviously the flashlight's important. We just pointed it where we wanted it to go. The floodlight's important because it gave us insight into where the heck the flashlight was pointed, right? It's like, what's going on right now? What is happening in this moment? And then the juggler executive system kicked in and said, get back on track. Come on, get back on track. And when we think about this as supporting all three of these systems and exercising them over and over again, it can feel less like a burden or something we can't achieve and something just much more like we're just doing it. You know, we don't argue with ourselves when, when we're doing reps on some kind of, you know, with some kind of weight. We're not like, oh, why is this weight so heavy? It's like we understand the challenge and we're going to do what feels comfortable and maybe push ourselves a little bit. Same idea with the mind. 
I think that's really telling because I know from experience when I first started meditating, I was frustrated that it, it happened so suddenly. Like, it's like, yes, I'm getting it. And then you, you lose it. And then exactly that, you start to beat yourself up and get down on yourself. Like, why does this seem easier for others? Am I doing it right? But that's part of the practice. That's part of the challenge. And that's normal. And a lot of what I hope we're doing today for our audience is just normalizing these things. You're not alone. This is biological processes in our brain doing what it needs to do to keep us alive. And we need to be more mindful and more present of these processes to harness them for what we want out of life, to direct our focus and attention to the tasks that really matter to us. Exactly. You said it so beautifully that, you know, it's, it's, we're doing this for a reason. We're not doing it to be awesome breath followers. Nobody cares if you can follow <laughs> the sensations of your breath. It's so that we can take that capacity into the rest of our lives. But yes, we want to just reframe. You know, if the, if the moment you notice your mind has wandered, you feel like you lost something and you use that phrase, I think it's a really telling phrase, you actually found something. You found that you don't you, you know where your attention is right now, and it's not where it needs to be. So reframe that moment of realizing your mind has wandered away as a tiny little win. Because if you didn't have that win, you could be off planning your next vacation or thinking about the taxes you've got to pay. You, know, you could be off for a very long time. So for me, as I was practicing you know, in those early days, I remember thinking, oh, wow, it's not that I'm staying steady for longer periods of time. It's that I'm earlier to notice when I'm off task. It's like I'm, I'm getting more I'm, – I, I don't have to have a full-blown fantasy about something. It's just more like, oh, my mind feels a little unsteady and get it back fast. So we'll, we'll start establishing in ourselves and you know, oftentimes we might even feel like, man, I'm so distracted. We might feel more distracted. Then hopefully you'll realize, nope, you're just checking in with what's actually already happening. It's creating those guardrails so you don't go so far off track that an hour has passed and you haven't completed your task, right? Exactly. It's, it's recognizing it sooner. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. It doesn't mean that struggle will no longer be there. But paying closer attention to those signs can allow you to redirect it in a meaningful way. And I know what comes up for a lot of people in our audience who have children is the struggle that they are now seeing their children go through around focus and attention and again, use of devices. And it's a common question that a lot of parents in our X Factor Accelerator program ask, what can we do to help our kids maintain better focus and attention? They feel that their kids are not present or tuning out and it can be difficult for them to communicate. And we know that attention plays an important role in establishing great relationships in our lives. As parents, and I, I know you have kids, what are your strategies, not only for your own attention, but to help them build these tools at a younger age? Oh my gosh, that's a big one. The first thing I'd say, and it's such a natural impulse, right? As parents, we love our children. We do anything for them. And it's like, help them. I would say, in the spirit of loving them, work on yourself. And it sounds like I'm copping out in an answer, but I'm really serious because what I realized, even with my children, and they were quite young when I when I was really getting the sense that I'm super out of it, I'm not here. If I can show up, if I can, if I can model what it means to fully pay attention to them, and they experience what that feels like, there's just a natural inclination to want to do that back. Um, so I would just say, you know, we can definitely talk about strategies for, for children, but really don't bypass the effort and not even effort, I want to say, the commitment to support yourself being better at doing this. 
And I would say my children are probably way better at, at uh, dealing with technology challenges than I am. I mean, they both had, at some point I asked them the same question, like, what do you do when you find yourself on Instagram? They're like, oh, well, they both had said they deleted all the apps that were distracting them. And then they put timers on things that they knew, knew that they would have to use for school, like YouTube or whatever, to go see a class video. And I was like, what? You know, so they're using external ways to really control which I don't think is a bad approach, but really the, the, the key here is going to be having more internal awareness of where your attention is moment by moment. And like, just to unpack that, you know, oftentimes, and it's definitely happened to me, I mean, less and less as I've been becoming more aware and practicing more, but you're just sitting there. The next minute, you have the phone in your hand and you've been scrolling for 10 minutes. And you might even get that kind of achy feeling like, I can't get off of this thing. Right. But did you notice when you picked up the phone? Did you notice when the facial recognition software allowed you in to access all your apps? Did you, did you notice clicking on the app? Did you notice what happened next? No, it's all a blank because it becomes this sort of ballistic, mindless, automatic thing that we do. And when we start applying these same things, these same principles of focus, notice, redirect to our more granular moment by moment nature, we can intervene a lot more easily. You know, like I remember the first time I started really thinking about how to use this as it, as it relates to Instagram, it was like, what am I needing right now? Like before I even press it, what do I want? I don't know. I want some engagement. I want something. I don't want to see what Emmy outfits people are wearing. Like, okay, fine. Do that. That's your goal. Get that input and then stop. Right. It's like make micro goals for even what you want, but that, that provides some limits um, and barriers. But I actually wanted to connect it back to, if you don't mind, what you asked me a few moments ago regarding ADHD and, and real attentional disorders and challenges people have. It ends up children, they have less developed frontal lobes than adults. And the frontal lobes are a key part of the network that allows all three of these attention networks to actually function well. So realize that attention is developmentally slow to mature. And for those of us over the age of 35, maybe not, neither of you are, but uh, it's on the fastest decline as well. So our frontal lobes are, they don't fully develop to our 25. And then around 35, they start kind of dwindling. So I got a good 10 year window where we're kind of, you know, at our peak of, of attentional functioning. But thankfully, there are things that we can do. And, and actually, some of the really interesting research regarding mindfulness is that it has sort of this youth inducing properties of keeping frontal lobes kind of cortically thick and more um, healthy looking. But in people that have uh, ADD, actually the, the clinical diagnosis of ADD, it is the case that they tend to have attentional dysregulation. And it's really important to, to understand what that means. It doesn't mean that they're always distracted. It means that each of these systems and potentially multiple systems are not functioning normally. So sometimes it can actually look like the flashlight is just stuck on things for too long. It can't have its normal buoyancy. And when we did a project with adults with ADD, I mean, I, it was specifically on mindfulness training for adults with ADD because I was very curious, you know, and uh, how it might help and how we might have to change the way that they practice to support them. And the first thing we learned is that, first of all, to say, we didn't tell them to do anything differently with their medication. They were, if they were taking it, take it, do whatever you normally do. Participate in this class. It was about uh, eight weeks long. And, you know, I gave that number earlier of 12 minutes a day of, of practice. We didn't even have them start practicing 
12 minutes till the eighth week. <laughs> so it was a very slow ramp up, right? And all the practices were very active. I would never actually have an ADD group have them sit quietly in a, and not move and keep their eyes closed. It's like, we're going to walk, we're going to move, and we're going to pay attention to the sensations as we're walking. Very active things. But here's what was kind of interesting. You know, it is the case that that adults, and this is just known separate from mindfulness, that adults with ADD tend to have higher reported mind wandering. But if they also have another feature, which is actually tied to that floodlight function, something called meta-awareness, so that they have more capacity to check in with their mind moment by moment, they don't suffer as much from the mind wandering. So we already know from the kind of studies on not mindfulness, just ADD, that meta-awareness is something that is really, really beneficial, even if you have a clinical diagnosis. And that's the function that these adults that were going through our eight-week program reported back. And they said some of the most amazing things, like, I still take my medication, but now I don't take my medication and play video games for eight hours. I actually think to myself, what do I want to be doing right now with this focus that I have? And, you know, just the most creative gifts I ever received as a researcher too, by the way. So I just think it's important to realize that that these same things that we talked about for all of us apply for people that might have a, sort of the extremes of challenge based on any of the brain systems that we re reviewed. This brings up two, two points that I wanted to get at. <laughs> Number one... I don't know how much research you had done into hallucinogenics and how they take over attention and being able to check out something for hours on end and it becomes your whole world. So there's that, but also something that, that was in the book that goes along with that, because when you're in that state, it's usually you're in play and you're making something out of the situation and out of this attention and your mind has taken over. And you talked in your book about staying in play and finding those moments where you lose yourself in what you are, what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, Jenny, you really read the book. Well, that makes me really happy. <laughs> a plus. No, <laughs> I'm always a professor. No, absolutely. So maybe unpa I'll unpack what I mean by stay and play, because it actually, it's not about play. Like, you know, you're, you're um, playing an instrument or something like that. It's really regarding uh, the model of the brain as an MP3 player. So typically when we have mind wandering, which is again, this 50% off task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity, what we're doing is mental time travel, most of us. So back to that MP3 analogy, we're in fast forward. So we're planning, we're thinking about the next thing, or we're in reverse, reflecting on past experiences. And under high stress situations, which often we're in, it's not just the productive fast forward and rewind, but you know, now when we're fast forward, we're catastrophizing, we're worrying, we're making up doomscapes that just not only haven't happened yet, but they just never happen, right? And when we're rewinding, we're sometimes looping on bad experiences and we're kind of stuck in this kind of like a tsunami of our own making. So when I say stay on play, what I'm talking about is essentially what I see mindfulness as, this capacity to pay attention to our present moment experience without a story about it, without reacting to it. And that's what we're cultivating through these kind of practices, like the short one that we did. It's your breath, you cannot be saved for later. The breath is only happening right now. So it's really <laughs> help, helpful for in the now. You you know, it's like, it's so, it's a I'm breathing right now. And when we find ourselves yanked away in time, 
we can bring ourselves back to the here and the now very, very quickly and efficiently. And being in that mode allows us to get more of the raw data of our moment-to-moment life so we can intervene when we need to. Well, you mentioned stress, and we've touched on this a little bit. And I think going through the pandemic, you call it VUCA in the book, we've all experienced this period of high demand. And many of us have fallen into these doomscapes where we are scrolling and catastrophizing and compounding the stress with our dysregulation of our attention. So what is VUCA and how can we actually start to work through this when we are in a stressful situation? Because I totally understand mindfulness when things are going well and it seems like you're just getting your focus and attention back. But many of us are in a place where we don't even feel that things are going well. And it's hard for us to get out of that that stress mode to even start building this resilience and get our focus back. Oh, that's so interesting. Because actually... The reason that I started working in this whole area with the kind of populations that we work with in my lab, like I mentioned, you know, military service members or uh, first responders, medical and nursing professionals, is because they have to operate when things are not going great. In fact, we rely on them as a society to be at their best when by any stretch of the imagination, these are some of the worst circumstances human beings have to suffer through, right? I mean, war, fire, uh, you know, emergency surgeries, et cetera. So I actually was always thinking of mindfulness as being more useful in the context of real world, real life challenge. But I can, I can understand what you're saying is that, you know, in some sense, it feels like it's easier to do when there's not like catastrophe happening. And that's certainly the case, but sort of the hardest test is being able to show up even when things are difficult. So the first thing is that we're not trying to disabuse ourselves. We're not trying to put on rose-colored glasses and see the world any differently. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're, we're, we're cultivating the capacity to see what is happening in the moment, really see, not exaggerated stories of uncertainty, not, oh, woe is me, it used to be so much better, but what is actually happening right now? And, you know, I, I described mindfulness as not just present-centered attention, but non-judgmental non-editorializing, and non-reactive. So it's got these very clear qualities of how we're paying attention. I think those are, that's really important because we don't do that. Usually we have a director's cut of, of, of our lives, right? It's like we're watching a movie and it's like, oh, in, in this scene, I'm blah, 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 blah. It's like we've got the reality and then we've got the story about the reality. And we're, they're so fused together that we don't really know if it's the story that's driving the reality or if it's really there. So part of what mindfulness is allowing us to do is to start watching our mind in that way. Is this the raw data or is this an overlay of my expectation? And doing that can help dial down these extremes that um, in our wonderful capacity to simulate reality and worlds in our own mind can sometimes drive us to really exaggerating the amount of stress hormones our body has to deal with. Um, So just living with the circumstances more clearly. So let's just, maybe I'll say one more thing, and then I want to go back to kind of talking through what you asked me about, which is uh, VUCA. So what is VUCA? You know, that's maybe the first thing. I'll just break it down. The The term actually we think comes from the U.S. Army War College, And it comes from a really key description of most combat situations. So V, volatile, U, uncertain, C, complex, and A, ambiguous. 
And you got to be able to perform in VUCA circumstances. What you need to do is have your full capacity. And you don't want to drain your batteries by thinking about all the bad stuff that could happen because you got to deal with bad stuff right now. People may actually be shooting at you. You don't have to imagine it. It's happening. So I think partly it is to build this, what I would probably call mental toughness of I'm here for it no matter what. There's no part of me that's trying to slip away uh, because if I don't fully have myself here, there's no way I'm going to be able to maneuver through the complexity and, you know, all these other circumstances that I'm dealing with. Well, I definitely feel that many of us have gone through this pandemic experience feeling that Mm -hmm. in large part for maybe even the first time in our lives. You know, many of us don't go into combat. We're not in such a long period of uncertainty, ambiguity. And of course, with the way media is portraying what's going on and the way we're seeing the numbers and the data, there are these narratives that are developing that are taking hold that, of course, make things seem a lot worse than they may be in our experience of it. And that catastrophizing creates a higher stress for us to look for the distraction, right? It's easier to doom scroll or to to go on social media and, and look for the fun dance videos to not deal with the here and now and be present necessarily in what's going on around us. So if someone in our audience is feeling that, that, that need to sort of remove themselves from the present and what we're seeing is actually that is not helpful for us developing the focus and the attention we need, how can we overcome those challenges in this higher stress environment? Yeah, no, just to say, I never, you know, all the work that I've been doing really over in the context of mindfulness has been with these very extreme, in some sense, groups uh, that are experiencing things like pre-deployment training, deployment itself, hurricane season, you know, whatever it is, and even undergrads that are going through the academic semester. I never thought the whole world would be experiencing that. And that is essentially the reality of what we're experiencing. It's true that we are in a VUCA circumstance. So I want to kind of lean on the learnings and the insights we got from working with those populations. The first thing is that our tendencies to want to escape, and by the way, a lot of military service members said the same thing to me too. I don't want to be in, in this moment. This moment sucks. You know, I just did a do a I just had to do a really long hike and my boots are digging into my feet and I don't want I want to escape. And then of course we have the conversation regarding, well, is it actually going to help you to ignore the fact that your your feet are not doing well? You know, when you start feeling that they're cutting in, maybe change the way your socks are or whatever. Like really taking it granular to say it may seem like it's a good idea to escape, but actually it's not going to serve you. Same thing goes, frankly, in the pandemic. Like you don't want to have to think about the fact that anybody you encounter, you know, especially with the Delta variant raging at these moments, anybody you encounter may be unvaccinated and you may be getting exposed to a deadly virus. That is the truth. If that is the reality, you could ignore it and pretend everything's great. Or you could actually say, you know what, I'm going to take some extra care, maybe keep my social distance, wear a mask, whatever the responsible approaches are so that the reality isn't isn't met with my uh, disregard for it. But the, the really hopeful part that we learn from all of these groups going through these extreme circumstances is actually three things. Let me start with the bad news. Sorry, John, did you want to cut in or can I say the bad news first? No, no, please. He's bracing himself for the bad news. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The bad news is it's not your imagination. If you undergo high stress, high demand intervals, your attention is actually objectively declining. You have less capacity available. Stress will do this. Your mood is also probably going to be much more negative. Your stress levels, your perceived stress is going up. So 
it's not your imagination that you're experiencing this. The cognitive fog is real. And this is exactly what a lot of the service members that were going through training reported to us. Then we ended up conducting a series of studies where we'd, you know, recruit a group like this. Half of them would get the mindfulness training under these high-stress circumstances. Half of them would not. They'd get it later. The group that didn't get the training, just like I just said, their attention starts to tank over a four- to eight-week interval. Their mood gets worse, too, and their stress levels go up. The other group... So, so just realize that it is a stressful circumstance by all objective measures, and even in the minds of the people that are going through it, we see that. But the group that got mindfulness training, same circumstances, their attention stayed stable over time. They did not decline. And those that did more practice daily, we asked them to do this 12 to 15 minutes a day, those that practiced more, actually some of them even got better than where they started even though it's under high-stress circumstances. That is what motivates me to make sure I practice every day, even if I'm feeling the cognitive fog, because if Marines can do this in a war zone when they feel depleted and benefit, maybe we can all benefit, and, and that will advantage us to make it through these very difficult global circumstances less degraded and diminished than we would be otherwise. Can you just unpack the 12 minutes? Because you've, you've mentioned it a few times now, and... We've had other guests on the show talk about mindfulness and meditation, and many in our audience have tried to go 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, and, and just said, oh my God, it, it's next to impossible. I feel like I, I can't do it for weeks on end. How did you arrive at the 12 minutes, and, and what does your 12 minutes today look like? The 12 minutes, I'll just say that part, that, that it looks like is very similar to the practice we did. So focused attention practice, this find your flashlight practice. And then we do other ones that really tap into those other systems. So there's a body scan where we're, we're, we're taking that flashlight through the body. There's open monitoring, which is really tapping into the floodlight. So we've set up a suite of practices in all of our research studies that I just mentioned, where we're getting at those various components of attention to strengthen it. So the practices are, are pretty straightforward. The way we, the reason we even came up with this prescription is because I had a very practical set of things that I wanted to know. What's the minimum amount of time that we should ask time-pressured, highly demanding professions to do every day? Because I'll tell you what happened is that we, I would start the conversation with the leaders of organizations and I'd say, listen, I need 24 hours and eight weeks to train your, your people. And I want them to practice 45 minutes a day. And basically, I'd hear a dial tone. <laughs> it's like, um, no, we're not doing that. And oh, yeah, by the way, I want them during pre-deployment training. It's like, uh, no. And by the way, no. You know, so and it wasn't just uh, military leaders. I mean, even undergrads, we couldn't get them to do that. Nobody would, especially if you're in high stress, it's like the last thing you want to do. So the response I typically get something is something like, well, I'll give you an hour. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you four hours. Like, and I'm just like, uh, I have no idea. Is four hours really enough? So we took a very systematic approach. And, you know, what I'm about to tell you, I like basically is an eight-year research journey where we were, we knew that the kind of gold standard for mindfulness training, which is thousands of studies have been published on this, mindfulness-based stress reduction. I'm pretty sure you've talked about it at some point. John Kabat-Zinn developed it, is an eight-week, 24-hour program offered at 750 plus medical centers around the world, 45 minutes a day. So that was our starter package. Like, okay, if we're going to do something, let's, let's stick to what we know works. And then we systematically said, can we go down start from 24 hours down to 16 hours? And what about eight hours? And then what about four hours? We just kept wanting to cut the time and then also crunch the window. You know, does it have to be eight weeks? Can we make it four weeks? Can we make it two weeks? And what I wanted to do with that effort was figure out like, what's too low? 
at what point do we just feel it's like nothing is going on, right? And essentially four hours over two weeks, not a good combo. So the sweet spot we found was about eight hours over four weeks. And, um, and then the other thing that happened was that, you know, we started out by asking everybody to do 30 minutes a day in this, in these larger courses, nobody was doing 30 minutes a day. Cause we said, look, no matter what, just be honest, tell us what you actually did. And we found out that there was a lot of zeros and then there was somewhere in between very, very few people did 30. And what we found with that group is that the more people did, the more they benefited but it took about 12 minutes a day to start seeing reliable benefits. And those that did more than 12 minutes benefited more. So, you know, that was sort of the first hint that maybe this prescription is good. Then we went on to just pursue other solutions, like only give them 12 minutes. Don't even tell them to do 30. What happens then? Oh, they do it. They do 30. They do the 12 minutes. They don't do it every day. They do it about five days a week. And when they do it about four to five days a week, we get benefits. So the on-ramp to just starting to see benefits, we just made it much more uh, reasonable. And we started seeing people practicing more consistently and engaging in what we were offering. The carrot is more appealing than the stick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next question that I'm sure many of our listeners have and it's the way that many of them are wired is a morning, evening, is there a time window that is best? Because we've had guests come on the show and say, I do it first thing in the morning. We've had other guests say they bookend their day in the evening. Did you notice a difference in what the timing of the actual meditation or mindfulness was during the day? We have not asked that question. And that would take another kind of a research study where you force people to do it at certain times of day and see when it tends to stick. But you, I think the fact that you've already had a variety of answers gives you the insight which is the best time to do it is when you do it. <laughs> so <laughs> right. so if for you that happens to be in the morning, that's great. What I always suggest is yoke it to something you definitely do every day. Like without fail, you're going to do it. Like is it having your morning coffee? Then do it right before. I bet you're going to enjoy that morning coffee a lot more actually if you're much more present for the taste of it. If you brush your teeth every day, which I hope you do, uh, do it right after that and make it the very important thing is as you're trying to set up these habits, and this is basic habit formation, set yourself up so you get that little dopamine burst of like, I did it. You know, so I always say if you think you can do five minutes to start, do two. Because you should really get in your gut, like, did it, did it, did it, win, win, win. Then slowly ramp up till you get to the point where you feel comfortable. And then then I would say follow the kind of recommendations I provide of what you can try for this four-week on-ramp to give your attention the full workout. You know, all those brain systems will get exercised by doing the suite of practices. And frankly, that was my motivation for writing the book. We had learned so much from these kind of high-pressure, high-demand groups but I didn't think that they were the only ones that could benefit. So I wanted to offer it to all of us because, frankly, at some point in our lives, if not more than one moment in our lives, we're going to be high pressured and time pressured for sure. So, And as we wrap, what was the most surprising finding in all the research that you did in, in researching for the book and your own research? Anything counterintuitive or surprising you'd love to share with our audience? Oh, such a good question. I think the thing that surprised me um, which was kind of the bad news part. It's like, oh my gosh, our entire military is training people to go to war zones and they're more depleted than they were eight weeks before. That was the really scary wake-up call of like, ooh, not good. And probably even more upsetting to me as a professor was undergrads were the same way. Their attention was worse at the end of the semester, right before finals, 
than at the beginning of the semester. And I feel it. I mean, as a professor, I'm like, I feel worse at the end of the semester than the beginning. But for them, their, their grades depend on it. So that part was like a wake-up call that I was very surprised by. And I think the other thing that really did surprise me, because even in those early days, I was describing Richard Davidson telling me about the meditation work he was doing and learning about these kind of Olympians of meditation, practicing for like three years silent retreats. And, you know, this is their full-time job and they're, they're literally monks on mountaintops that are changing the structure and function of their brain. I just thought it would never happen for me. How could we ever give this to regular ordinary people? I mean, how would it ever be useful? And to find that as little as 12 minutes, you know, 12 to 15 minutes, about four to five days a week is enough to actually see not one study, two studies. Now we're up to like, you know, 12, 13, 14 studies just with that prescription. Uh, and then the larger literature is now just blossoming to say short form training can actually help. That made me so hopeful and so excited. So that was the happy surprise. I love that. And regaining all this attention we can put towards the relationships in our lives that matter, which is what the Art of Charm is all about. We love asking every guest what their X factor is. What is that part of you that makes you extraordinary? Oh my gosh. So this is the humble brag part of the show. <laughs> I asked my I asked my um, son that, like, what do you think that I'm the best at making? And he said, children. So <laughs> I, I think for me, the thing that I enjoy the most, which I hope aligns with what I'm good at, is trying to take complex brain dynamics, like, you know, functional brain dynamics or the complexities of the mind that seem unapproachable to most people and, and put it in a way that makes it relatable. That's one thing I really love to do. And I hope, um, at least through reading the book, people will agree that that's something I was able to do successfully. I definitely believe so. The book is Peak Mind. We highly recommend our audience check it out to find your focus and own your attention, which we know is so important in building the relationships that matter. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Mishio. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Johnny, I have to say, we've talked about meditation and mindfulness on the show in the past, but never to the degree and science that Dr. Amishi brought to this show. And I was so happy to dig into all of the work that she's done with professionals, with military special operators and high-level athletes to gain that edge and unlock their X factor. Well, we've certainly talked about meditation and mindfulness practice here on the show, but when you link it to attention, that's when you truly see the benefits. And we all know that focus is a superpower. And what's the number one ingredient in focus? <laughs> Your attention. So I loved how this show came out. And I know now everyone is going to get their 12 minutes every morning. Johnny, we got a shout out today from our Instagram. One of our show listeners wrote us, hey, AJ, Johnny and Michael. Oh my gosh, I'm listening to your podcast on networking and I had to stop in the middle to write and say thank you. I've struggled with this for years, hating to network with any ulterior motive. And I love how you guys are explaining it all. It's a huge help to me. Thank you so much. So many light bulb moments. Now back to the podcast, Elizabeth. That is exactly why we do this show, Johnny. And I love the Toolbox episodes. If you have not caught our Guide to Networking Toolbox, Double back. It was a few episodes ago, and it is so full of strategies that we've used to grow this podcast. 
And we want to shout out you on this show. So find us on Insta, Twitter, wherever. Shoot us a message. Let us know how this show has helped you. And we'll highlight you on the next episode. That's right. You could find us at The Art of Charm on all your favorite platforms. And we love the positive reviews. Also, before we go, could you head over to your favorite podcast app and rate and review this show? It helps us bring on amazing guests. And of course, fans like Elizabeth find the show. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. Have a good one.